Father God, may my words now magnify you, show you off for who you are. May they, the words of your uh, holy Bible uh, comfort us, assure us, as Paul longs for us to have today. May they bring us great joy uh, and also great challenge. We thank you that your word is rich and is true and is going to speak to us right now by your spirit. Amen. If you're uh, reading Romans 8 in uh, either one of the NIV Bibles or one of these little books, um, if you flick back, if you're in the black books, flick back to page 42 and you'll notice, um, I don't know what it is in the red Bibles, but it's probably about one page back. Uh, You'll notice there's a little title at the top. And it's been put in by the editors of translation. It's not been put in by Paul. Paul did not have verse numbers. He didn't put little titles in. The editors put in this. It says, life through the spirit. This uh, whole section of Romans, Romans sort of 5 to 8, is a, is a clear block. Uh, it looks at the results of Jesus' work on the cross, our justification, our being declared right, innocent before God. Uh, and we're finishing that sort of block today. Uh, and then we're going to have a break, as hell said, for the summer. But in Romans 8, we've really focused in, Langs in his first weeks particularly, focused on what the work of the Spirit is, life through the Spirit. 17 times in the first few verses of chapter 8, we hear about the Spirit. But I've not really mentioned the Spirit since verse 18, last week or this week. There's no mention from verse 18 onwards of the Spirit. We saw last week about how we're to live in the midst of present suffering, in the midst of life. Uh, The call... Uh, to trust in the Lord, to understand how, uh, for the Christian, God is in his sovereignty working all things for our good to make us more like Jesus. We, we had verses 29 and 13 read just now, outlining the, the confidence, the certainty we can have. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. This is how Paul is describing life for you if you're the Christian today. Those at Town Church who put their trust in Jesus were predestined, called, justified, and will be glorified. Utter confidence. And yet it is odd. There doesn't seem to be any mention of the Spirit's work here. And then Paul asks, what should we say in response to these things? Uh, and in response to the whole of Romans, but particularly in response to sort of verses 28 to 30, it seems. And he then goes big. He says, what can we say in response to these things we've looked at? Well, we can say, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's like a rallying cry of utter confidence. And then these famous verses, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. He basically says, nothing can. They're, they're startling verses. What utter confidence Paul has. And he longs for us to have that confidence. But the question comes, why no mention of the Spirit, Paul? Well, because the work of the Spirit, the heart of the work of the Holy Spirit is to do just this. It is to assure us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. To assure you, the Christian today, if you're trusting in Christ, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. To remind you that you're a child who has a loving permanent heavenly father because probably the main problem we all face is we don't actually believe this we we pay lip service to it we don't believe it we don't live it out 
I think the central question, it seems, of the Christian life, the one that prompts all our, all our doubts, all our worries, all our tensions, all our anxiety is, is there anything or anyone that can separate me from Christ's love for me? And as Paul's initial readers, and as we look around, we see many things that might seem to. Paul talks about trouble, hardship and persecution. They come to all Christians. Famine, nakedness, danger and sword will come to many. And the experience of God's people through the ages has very often been, in the words Paul quotes here from Psalm 44, to face death daily. (coughs) Today alone, uh, the stats say 250 Christians have lost their lives for being believers in Jesus. About 90,000 a year. There are many obstacles, there's much opposition, many difficulties. And we ask, surely one of them could remove us from God's love. Well, today's aim from Paul, at the end of Romans 8, he wraps this up. And the aim from me as I preach is that we would leave, if you're trusting in Jesus, confident and full of assurance. There's nothing sadder than a child who's not sure they are loved. What kind of father is it who never tells his children individually that they are loved? Who proposes to throw them out of the family unless they behave? We often view God more like a boss maybe than a father. You see, a boss, even the kindest of bosses, only has a limited amount of patience. If you continue to mess up, then eventually they will begin to work out how to get rid of you. That's not the case with a father, though. The more you mess up, the more intense their love and concern is for you. Just think of the story of the prodigal son, if you remember it. The the father's love intensifies. His concern is ramped up, even as his son wanders and struggles. God wants today for us to know that we are loved. that, That you are safe. That you can have assurance. And the Spirit helps us to believe this. It helps us to know this. The Spirit we saw in verse 1 of chapter 8 is is what gives us new birth. Verse 2. It's how you become a Christian, resting in the work of Jesus alone. If you've been at Town Church for the whole of this series in Romans so far, remember back to the hard days, Romans 1 to 3? Think back to those. We thought they were hard work. The, the, the summary right at the end of it, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We, we felt that weightiness, didn't we, of our sin? All of us have not loved God. We've, we've not honoured him. We've uh, seen how there's an outworks in our thoughts and our actions. And yet, as we've moved them through in Romans, we've seen how God in his mercy has made it possible for there to be forgiveness. And how the Spirit now gives life and helps us rest in the truth. And we saw that picture in Romans 8, verses 15 and 16. How the Spirit is, is given to show us we're not just forgiven. We're not just pardoned, we're adopted. We're not like a, a criminal who is pardoned on death row. We're, we're like a child who's been adopted into a permanent family. And if, if God in love has made Christians his children, and if he's perfect as a father, then two things must follow. But the family relationship must be permanent, secure, because perfect parents do not abandon their children. Christians may act like the, the prodigal son, but God will never stop acting like the prodigal's father. Second, God will go out of his way to make his children feel his love for them. To, to help them know the, the privilege, the security which we can have as members of his family. Adopted children need assurance that they belong. And a perfect parent will never withhold it. 
Verse 16 tells us this. This is what the Spirit does. It assures us, it testifies that we are God's children. Its primary function to remind us we're children, not employees. And at the end of chapter 8, Paul continues here. And he, and he basically dictates again kind of the work of the Spirit through these three rhetorical questions. A bit what we've been looking at in the rest of Romans. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who is the one who condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul is outlining God's work to remind us of it. He's, he's outlining it because he's had to go over in his mind these truths himself to help him cope. With, with both his internal battle of his sin, but also the external forces of his life, which he lists here. So, why do you need this passage today? Well, we're going to look at three questions. Uh, if you'd like to take notes, uh, I've got some stick at home group on Monday for uh, not putting my structure up clearly enough at the start. So there's going to be three questions. Um, they're going to roughly be an even amount of length. So if you're trying to fit it into your book, you've probably got about a page, a third of each page. But if you're, not, uh, if you're here and, and you're not a Christian, you, you're really welcome. But, but if you're looking on, or maybe if you're a relatively new Christian, uh, or maybe you can think back to it if you've been in Christ a while, you'll be asking yourself a question like this when it comes to Christian faith. This first question you'll be asking is, is it worth it? Is, is it worth sticking with God? It's the first question you consider as you kind of look in. Uh, we took uh, my four-year-old Dunks to Legoland on Friday as a present, his, his last one before he goes to school. Uh, beforehand he wasn't exactly buzzing Uh, he had no frame of reference Um, he knew it was a bit like a big park with some rides Uh, so questions will it be as fun as my park daddy yeah Uh, will there be swings Ah, there's more than swings there dunks will will it be fun yeah it'll be really fun Uh, the problem was it's very hot but he couldn't really cope with that the problem was, though, he found as he was thinking about it, I, I really wanted him to be so excited like Christmas morning, but his imagination didn't allow him to think that it would be better than his kind of current experiences. Remember the illustration last week of C.S. Lewis. Imagine speaking with a, a young child who's only ever played in a muddy puddle and trying to explain the ocean to them. Oh, it's like a very big puddle, but a bit cleaner. And it's not that muddy. And it's so big that you can't even see to the end of it. Yeah, okay. The problem is, like Dunks, the child will go, I'm not sure. Will I have as much fun there? The imagination doesn't allow it. And I think this is what happens just before becoming a Christian and just after it. We ask, is it worth it, really? Maybe you've heard stories where it maybe sounds restrictive, the Bible, when it talks about sex, maybe, or when it talks about money, couple of hours every Sunday with a bunch of people I don't really know, really? Is it worth it? Paul categorically says, yes. We, we looked at glory last week. We looked at uh, how it's hard to imagine in many ways, but ultimately uh, asking, is it worth it? Asking, is it worth it? It is in some ways, like with Dunks, a, a lack of imagination. It's like playing in a muddy puddle when the offer on the ocean still stands. Is it worth it? We all have to get over that lack of imagination. And if you're not following Jesus yet, can I invite you to come and see? Imagine if it was true, if it is true. Imagine like Paul, you could declare you are a conqueror as he does it in this passage. What confidence that nothing in life can be against you ultimately because you have God on your side. Imagine that was true. But if you are following Jesus... If you've tasted and seen that, if you, you've begun to get into the Christian life, then I think a different question, a different problem rears its head. 
You begin to skim the surface of the blessings God has for you. You, you. you imagine glory, you think about it. But a bit like our journey through Romans, you begin more and more to realise the extent of your own sin. Your, your selfishness, your pride, your, your utter self-obsession, the way that outworks in your relationships with others and with yourself. Like Paul in Romans 7, you begin to say, what a wretched man or woman I am. Who will rescue me from this body which is subject to death? And so instead of asking, is it worth it? Maybe you're now asking, will God stick with me? I think this is the heart of a chapter. Will God stick with me? It's, it's like me thinking at the start of my marriage that Caroline was doing well for herself. But now nearly 10 years in, I realise it couldn't be further from the truth. Why would she stick with me? As you get to know someone. You ask, why is God going to put up with me? And as we've gone through Romans, I know I've been struck by this. I know a number of you have been struck by this. We've been struck by our own sin, our own rebellion, the sin behind the sins. And so we naturally then ask in verse 33, it's a question we ask, who will bring a charge against me? Who will bring a charge? And Satan does this. He condemns us. He reminds us. He needles us. He keeps harassing us. He brings charges against us. He tells us how wicked we are. He tells us how we do not deserve God's love and his kindness. He keeps reminding us of us and he mocks us. He tells us of everything we've done. He lays every charge against us. And if you felt that. Do you know any other world religion doesn't allow for any form of assurance? It's one of the greatest debates of the Reformation uh, in their debate with Roman Catholicism. Can you have a certainty and security as a Christian? The Catholic Church said no. They said that's presumptuous. The reformers said yes. Because we presume on Christ. I once had a good friend who was uh, training to be a Muslim imam. We used to sit and read the Bible and the Quran together uh, once a week. And he just couldn't get it into his head around the fact that I could say because of Jesus' work, I had certainty of glory to come. That, That even now as I sat with him, I had certainty that I was loved. That I was enough for God. Not because of anything I'd done but because of Jesus. Who will bring a charge against me? We we ask this because we know ourselves, because we know our sin. And and Paul's answer when that question comes, when that question rears and it will rear, that doubt will come. Who will bring a charge against me? Go with so many charges. And Paul's answer is look at Jesus. Look at the, the justification of Christ. Who can bring a charge against him? And then look at the intercession of Christ. Verse 33 says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. When we doubt, when we lack assurance, we're to look firstly at the finished work of Jesus. It is God who justifies. That's the past work of Jesus, his complete and total victory of sin on the cross. It's totally God's work. He justifies, he died, he was raised. But Paul then says more than that, Jesus was raised to life and is now at the right hand of God interceding for us. What's Jesus doing now? He's interceding for us. He's not dead. He's interceding. It's a legal term. It kind of overlaps with when we talk about Jesus being our advocate, our intercessor. It's like our lawyer. Intercession means a third party comes between two others to make a case on the behalf of the other. 
Maybe like a, a parent interceding to a teacher on behalf of a child or a sports agent interceding with a team on his client's behalf. That There's always two sides. And in this illustration which Paul's given us, we're on one side and God is on the other. Now we need to be clear that intercession does not imply that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't final, it wasn't complete. Christ's work on the cross is complete. But intercession applies what the work on the cross accomplished. When you want a lawyer, you want them to plead a case on your behalf. Don't I've never known this. Maybe you have. When you want a lawyer, though, you want them to plead a case on your behalf. When you sin, what is Jesus saying to the Father now? Because the Bible explains Jesus is our advocate, our lawyer. He's interceding for us. And when he's doing that, he's pointing to his own work. Jesus is not pleading mercy for us. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing is speaking to God about his work on the cross. He's saying to God, Father, your law demands payment. We've seen that the wages of sin is death. Your law demands payment. And Father, I have paid for this man or this woman's sins. So I don't ask for mercy. I demand justice. He's like a lawyer arguing his case and pointing to his own work. Imagine this in the courtroom. Father, I have paid the penalty that is warranted for their sin. If you demanded payment again, God, it would just be two payments for the same crime. That's unjust. I paid. And you are just, God. So take my payment for their sin. Their past, their present and their future sins. What he's doing right now. The Lord demands acquittal. The Lord demands a not guilty verdict. And this is why we can have assurance. If you struggle with doubt, if you struggle with, am I good enough? Remember that he is. He is good enough. Jesus is good enough. If you struggle with guilt, remember that he has paid the total and full penalty of sin. So the logic here Paul is saying is stop condemning yourself. Stop retrying yourself. Stop it. Stop relying on yourself and your own goodness to be part of God's family. That's not how it works. I don't need to be good enough. I don't need to be a good enough son to be a son of my parents. It's not like how most of life works, I think. I'm in an absolutely awful run of form in my cricket team at the moment. Um, Do you know how it feels? If you've been part of that, son of that, it's embarrassing. Um, Cricket's a weird sport. It's an individual game which masquerades as a team sport. Um, but your stats are online, everyone knows about it. Uh, and it feels right now that I'm not really part of a team. So I'm not contributing. I'm not in. And sport is really fickle like that. It's easy to feel on the outside, to not really feel part of it if you're not performing it to a certain standard. And then personally, as I, as I turned up to play yesterday and as I'll turn up again next week after another failure, I feel a bit worried when I turn up to play. I'm worried about what people think about me. I'm worried about how I'm performing or not. I, I then don't really want to play. I'm lacking a bit of joy about it, what makes me love the game. The gospel is not like this at all, amazingly. When you want to condemn yourself, when you doubt your forgiveness, when you doubt your assurance, remember the complete work of Jesus. Remember his current intercession, his current advocacy for you now before the Father. And then let that give you total joy and freedom. Because that's what we've been made to have. An assurance that leads to joy and freedom. Because the total security we can feel in our position. Not because of us. <laughs> Just look in the mirror. Not because of us. But because of Christ and what he's done. 
Is it worth it? Yes. Will God stick with me? Yes. And then a final question you may come to ask as you come into the Christian life is, how can God be for me when life is so hard? Paul looks to his circumstances. Psalm 44, he quotes here in verse 36. Read it later. It's a bleak psalm. Those praying that psalm were facing pretty terrible circumstances. We looked at verses 28 and 29 last week as well. And it's a danger to think, if you're looking in on Christianity, if you're not trusting Christ today, it's a danger to think that becoming a Christian means life won't trouble you. Anything that is bad can happen to you, might happen to you. But the question is, what will you do when that situation comes? Like like last week, when present sufferings come, how can you have assurance still? Paul doesn't look at the intercession here. He looks at the sufferings of Christ. He says, when you you struggle to think, is God good in this? And what is he doing? Look at Christ and his suffering. Let me read verse 30 again. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul's being practically, being really logical here. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones called logic on fire. He's saying this flowing from verse 30. Have you been called? Has the gospel become good to you? Have you asked God to justify you, to forgive you? Then now realise this, that none of that could have happened unless the great God of heaven set his love on you in the depths of eternity. And is now perfectly working out his plan to live with you forever in his family. That's predestined and glorified. Just bookend those. It's been the whole logic of Romans. We've seen our sin. We've seen how we're all drowning no matter how far across the sea we get. It's only because of the mercy of God we're able to be saved. And so verse 30 is given to give us confidence so that when life hits hard, we can cope because we feel safe. And we can do so by meditating on the suffering of Christ. Verse 32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. God did not spare his son. Spare him from what? Spare him from the full weight of his wrath and his justice. God let Jesus have it all. Hell came down on him. And Paul wants us to think about that. Why? Because when you see Jesus suffering through hell for your sake, when your suffering comes, don't you dare say, I guess God doesn't love me or have a plan for me. What then should we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying, don't be found asking, how can God love me? Because this has happened. Because Jesus, whom God loved perfectly, who lived a perfect life, who had God's plan from the beginning of time outworked in his life, had a pretty miserable life. Jesus had a mess of a life. And God loved him immensely. He was dead at 33. He hung on a Roman criminal's cross. He was persecuted and abandoned. He was mocked by his followers. The mark of God's love for us is not measured in how easy or nice our life is. If you believe in hell, if you believe in God's wrath, then you know what it cost God to give you his son and not spare him that. 
And if the son was willing to take that, can you imagine why God would hold out anything short of that for you? In your suffering, in your pain, and it's real, and I get that. It can't be because of any indifference or stinginess on God's part. He must have a good reason for allowing you to go through what you're going through. He must. Verses 28-29 make that clear. If God did not spare his son, he will give you absolutely everything you need. He withholds nothing. It's a good father. Look at Christ's suffering, Paul says. If you have an easy life, it's not because you're a Christian. If you have a hard life, it's not because he does not love you. This is Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Welsh preacher. I think he sums up this passage quite well. It's challenging. Paul is saying, are you worried? You're not thinking. Are you feeling guilty? You're not thinking. Do you fear the future? You're not thinking. See the logic of God's grace. These aren't dry doctrines. They're life itself. We are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Friends, uh, this assurance, this confidence is available to us. We're able to declare with Paul that in all these things, whatever those things are, and you, as I say things, I talk about suffering, you'll have those things. Those things which really you find hard to reconcile. Those things which you're struggling and suffering with. Those things which you just can't understand. Paul would have had the same. Think of that list of Paul. Verse 37. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. And all these things which Paul had, well, well, it's all those things, which I'm struggling to find right now, but it's all those things, trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, next angel, Paul experienced all those things. And yet he can still say, nothing is separated from the love of God. If you're living an anxious life, lacking assurance and joy, unsure of his love for you. If you're not convinced of this, we can ask for his help. Think back to last week. We can ask for, we can pray even when we don't know how to pray. The call today is to stop living as if you're not loved. Paul's aim is that we would feel like conquerors. The, the actual word is like super conquerors. It's a better translation. I don't know why they didn't put it in. Super conquerors. And we can do that. We can only do that through knowing who we are and who God is. So I think that the main question which Romans 8 leaves me with is, do I as a Christian understand myself? Do, do I know who I am? I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My saviour is my brother. And he's cheering me on. And every one of you, every Christian is my brother and my sister too. Say this over and over again to yourself. First thing in the morning, last thing at night. I'm a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My saviour is my brother cheering me on. And every Christian is my brother and my sister too. That's the secret, not just to a happy life, but a Christian life. A God-honouring life. It's how it, you can say with the confidence that Paul, battered, broken, suffering Paul could say that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. So if, and I really do, if you struggle with this assurance, pray. Remember, we've looked at the Spirit's primary job, his primary purpose is to keep persuading you of this. 
to help you become more and more convinced of this, to help you become more and more in the family likeness, to live more and more as people who are part of his family. Is it worth it? Yes. Come and taste and see. Will God stick with me? Yes. If you've trusted in him, you are a permanent child in his family. Nothing can separate you from him. How can God be for me when life is so hard? Look at Jesus. God was and is for him and his life was hard. Remember the glory to come. The results, we'll be able to live like conquerors, three and joyful, even in the midst of the ups and downs of his life, totally secure and confident because of the love of the Father. My prayer is that that wonderful truth would transform us, brothers and sisters, today. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, that the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. Father, we need your help by your Spirit to to grasp our identity, to know who we are in you, to know we are your children and you are our Father and that is a good thing. Lord, let... uh, those in this room who have trusted in you leave with full and total assurance, trusting in your work, trusting that what you've done is enough, trusting that when you say we are your children, we are, when you say we've been adopted, we have been. Spirit, keep testifying that to us, keep reminding us of that, keep uh, us reminding one another of that. May we be a people who are free and joyful and delighting because of the work of Christ. We need your help. We forget this so often. We thank you that we're going to be able to remember it again once now uh, with communion. But we praise you for your word to us today. Amen.